Acts chapter 4, if you haven't opened there. And before we even start, let me give you a little bit of a family talk, a little bit of an update that uh, you might not know of. If you're not receiving Cornerstone Church emails, likely that means that you didn't stop by the website and fill out a connection card. And it's super duper easy. It really is. It takes maybe 45 seconds. So if you haven't done that, can I encourage you tonight, before you do anything else, before you go to sleep, go to the website, go to the connection card, fill it out, send it in, and you'll start getting all of our communications that we send out. We send out a lot of them through the week uh, so that you can know what's happening at Cornerstone. And one of the things that is happening at Cornerstone, which is pretty exciting, and it ought to be very exciting for you at this campus and tomorrow morning, it involves Pastor Matthew Millen. So I want to let you know what's happening with that. Uh, last year at the annual meeting, we budgeted a uh, line item for an executive director slash pastor. And so we agreed on that last year. And with COVID, it really slowed us down. And we really prayed through that. We really took our time. And uh, we want to present to you the decision of the board that Pastor Matthew Millen is now our executive pastor. That would be awesome, right? Yeah, there you go. That doesn't mean that he's leaving you as the campus pastor either. So he's going to be doing a dual role for a little bit uh, while we are going to be looking for, praying for, and raising up that campus pastor to take his place. But for the time being, he's going to be a, the executive pastor and the Sunday morning and Saturday evening Second Street Campus Pastor. So that's pretty exciting. So when you see him, let him know that. And you'll probably, as somebody in the town hall asked, you'll want to know what does an executive pastor do? Basically everything I don't want to do. Okay? <laughs> if you need any more information, we'll be giving a job description to you, and that's actually not correct, um, what I just said. But we'll be getting the, the job description to you, and you'll be able to know everything that that... Um, that uh, executive pastor is going to be doing. It's pretty exciting, and our church is long overdue and in need of that position. All right, are we ready? Yes. Are you ready for the Word of God? Yes. Man, Erwin, I don't think you were loud enough in that hallelujah, brother. That's okay. You don't need to prove that you cannot do that. You can if you want, but that was amazing. And uh, I got to tell you, I was up in the balcony listening to the worship is it not amazing what God is doing in our worship ministries? If you believe that God is at work in our worship ministry, how about we give a round of applause? It's amazing. And there's a couple of you that I'm looking at right now who have told me you are musicians. Unless you're terrible ones, we probably would like you to get involved. All right, so I want you to all look back up there. Mark Jefferson, can you stand up? Come to the front of the balcony. Don't fall over. That would be my funeral service for you at the same time as the Acts 4. All right, Mark Jefferson, right up there. Everybody look at Mark. Mark is the man who is leading the sound and the tech and the worship ministries right now. If you want to get involved in worship ministries, he would be the guy that you want to be talking to, all right? So please reach out to Mark, and um, you can find his email on our website, or you can talk to him while you're here. Is anybody tired of my preamble yet? Yes, I do think I see not nodding heads. How about we get right into the Word of God? I am so excited about this, but I'm going to tell you right now, I have a sober excitement. 
You see, when somebody preaches the Bible, they have to preach in a tone that matches the text. So if we're in a really serious passage, and I'm up here practicing my comedy act, of which I don't have a good one, that's not going to be very appropriate. And if we're in a joyful practice, or joyful passage rather, and I'm up here with dour illustrations, well, that's not very appropriate either. You really need to preach if you're going to preach as a biblical preacher in context and keeping in the tone of the text. And we're going to talk about persecution. Are we ready for it? Now, I really want to invite you to be very sober in your thinking on that. Uh, are you ready if persecution were to come in your lifetime? What is persecution? I'll tell you what persecution is not. It's not getting your car towed when you park on the wrong side of our church parking lot. That's not persecution. Persecution is not losing your job because you're a numbskull at work. That's not persecution. Persecution is when the world recoils at Christ in you and then comes at you with negative intent. It recoils at Christ in you and then comes at you with negative intent. The operative term that defines persecution is Christ. Christ in you will reap persecution. Ted Snedeker, that's his name, he's a teaching assistant and a doctoral student in the Department of Religious Studies of all departments at the University of California at Santa Barbara. He was asked this question. If you were dropped 2,000 years back in time with nothing but the knowledge you have now, what would you do? His answer was, and I'm quoting, I would find and assassinate Jesus of Nazareth. That's at one of our institutions. At Kent State. Saying these three words, you need Jesus to somebody else, is considered hate speech. Janine Hill Fletcher, a professor of theology at Fordham University, claims that the Christian doctrine of salvation is racist. Simmons College in Boston, Massachusetts, issued a warning that Christians commit microaggressions by saying Merry Christmas or Happy Easter or God bless you. These are serious accusations. And if you're a student at these universities, some of you are going to be getting expelled. That's what's happening. I could give you dozens more examples. In fact, if you want to get on web, our website and look at the sermon notes, I'm footnoting an article for you to go read, if you want to go read it, that will, dozens more of examples that will show you the persecution that's happening to Christians in America on our college campuses. But I'm going to tell you, the more the church is persecuted and oppressed, the more powerful her witness is of Jesus. 
In fact, let me read this from Edward Weiss. One of the greatest paradoxes in Christian history is that the church is most pure in times of cultural hostility. When the church encounters hardship and persecution and suffering, then there are fewer hypocrites and nominal believers, believers that sit on the fence among its members. And then the faith of Christians burns most intensely. Are you ready for, for persecution, Christian? Are you ready for the world to recoil because it sees Christ in you and then come at you with negative intent? As we look at Acts 4, we're going to learn how do you witness of Jesus in the face of persecution? I'm going to give you four ways that we can see from this passage. How, how can you witness of Jesus even in the face of persecution? Now we're going to get going and I'm going to pick up the, the speed here in a moment. But let me just tell you, I have to believe there are doubters here. I mean, I'm going to tell you one of the frustrating things that I deal with are Christians that truly don't believe things are ramping up by way of spiritual attacks. We have Christians in our church that don't really see this spiritual fomenting hatred ramping up. So when I'm talking about persecution in America and I'm asking, are you ready for it? I have to believe there are some of you going, well, I don't really know how this applies to me. I'm going to tell you very, very confidently and you'll hear me say it in a moment. The more you live for Jesus, I will guarantee you, you're going to face persecution. The more you live for Jesus, I'm going to guarantee you, you will face persecution. How can I back up that kind of statement? Well, listen, let's watch what the passage teaches. Number one. How do you witness of Jesus even in the face of persecution? The very first one is what I was just actually doing with you for the last minute. Prepare your mind for persecution. Christian, I know, believe me, I sat in the pews for years while people preached. I wasn't always the lead pastor. And I know, I know, and I know when a pastor makes a statement like this, Sometimes it gets deflected. It just doesn't get treated seriously. I told you this is a sober sermon because I really believe it's coming. And I believe it's here already. And I think the more we live for Jesus, the more, yes, you, mom and dad and your children, if, listen, if they live for Jesus, will be persecuted. So let's prepare our mind for it. And it didn't take long for opposition and persecution to rear up against the church. Here we go. Acts chapter 4. Let's all look at our Bibles. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Let's get a little bit of a cultural backdrop here. There are 24 divisions of priests for the Jewish people. 
And every single one of those divisions served a total of at least two weeks a year, one week at a time. So maybe one week in March, our March, and another week in our October. And then they would cast lots for the the divisions that were going to serve and make up the rest of the year. But most of the priests didn't live in Jerusalem. Did you hear that? Most of them didn't live in Jerusalem. I mean, just think of the Good Samaritan story. A Levite was walking down the street in Jericho. They're not even near Jerusalem at this point. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They came into the city for each week of their service or these festivals. And when they did serve, they counted. Now, you got to hear this. They counted that week the most blessed part of their year. There was no higher joy for a priest than to serve in the temple of Jerusalem. So they're serving this particular division when all of a sudden this ruckus breaks out that we looked at two weeks ago, the healing of this this lame beggar and everybody running into the the, uh, court of the Gentiles near Solomon's portico, so likely very annoyed at the interruption of their services, here come the priests, here comes the chief of police, That's the captain of the temple. And here come some Sadducees. They're a very small group, the Sadducees, but they're extremely wealthy. They're powerful, religious, politically, very, 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 very authoritative. And the Sadducees, they're kind of crazy, to be honest with you. They don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. These are like religious leaders of Jerusalem, and they taught that the angels and the spirits and the spirit world were all myths. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They only believed in the infallibility and the inspiration of the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. They believed that man was the master of their own destiny, that God was not involved in calling the shots, that there's no such thing as a sovereign God who works all things out according to his purpose. This is the Sadducees. They're like modern liberal professors that teach at religious universities or in the religious department at universities. And this group, all three of them, came upon them. Look what it says. They came upon them greatly annoyed. Came upon them in the Greek is a whole lot stronger than it is in the English. This is a fast and furious, a grab and go, and the next thing that Peter and John know, they're in custody. They're in jail. There was no warning. And the reason that they took them and arrested them is in verse 2. Now look at Christian persecution. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now I told you a moment ago, and I told you I would back this up and I would show you, That if you are going to live your life for Jesus, I guarantee you, you're going to face persecution. I didn't just make that up. These are the words of Jesus, who prepared, by the way, Peter and John. He said to them, months before this, a servant is not, not greater than his master. Actually, this is just weeks before this. He goes on, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, if you're a cynic... 
you could possibly get away with saying, well, the you are the apostles, not us, modern, average Christians. Well, then you've got to bring in the Apostle Paul's writings from later, 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Did you notice that he didn't say maybe persecuted? This is very emphatic. Peter himself is going to write a little later, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you suddenly to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Christian, I'm going to tell you right now, listen, if you want to be ready to be able to witness of Jesus in the face of persecution, get your mind around it. Get prepared for persecution. It will come. Secondly, pin your confidence to the promise. Now, I'm going to tell you, in fact, I'll give you a fun little story of Pastor Matthew. He got some people really upset at him several years ago. I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you what he did. He was invited, asked and invited, to run a Tough mutter. And he did with zero preparation. Now, if you know Pastor Matthew, you know he detests exercise zero <laughs> zero preparation and nobody on his team could keep up with him i'm going to tell you that's not normal that's not normal in any context it is definitely not going to happen and he will tell you as well as i will in a spiritual context if you do not get ready for persecution, it will be a surprise, and it has the potential to mow you down under it. You've got to pin your confidence to the promise. It's already evening in Acts chapter 4. The, in night trials, when they arrested John and Peter, night trials are illegal to the Jews. They completely broke that with Jesus. So they put them in jail overnight, and then, verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this, this being healing the lame beggar? So we've got the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are 71 of the most powerful, wealthy men in Israel. They make up basically what would be equivalent to our Congress. 71 men, they sit in a big courtroom with raised seats while they hold court. And if you're hauled in before them, you are on a level ground before them. They're up higher than you. 71 men. All these elite spiritual leaders of Israel, all even up to the high priest. And before the, the Roman occupation, a high priest was a high priest for life. But not when Rome took over. Now Rome is the one that appointed the high priest. Did you know that? And you know how they did that? You know how Rome appointed the high priest of Israel? It went to the highest bidder and the one who was willing to collaborate with Rome the most closely. 
Did you know that? Do you see how corrupt even the highest position of God's people is? It took a greedy, wealthy sellout to Rome to become the high priest. And by the way, the high priests were hated by the common Jewish people. Here's the high priest. It's actually Caiaphas, not Annas. You see, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, but Annas is the real power behind the throne. He orchestrated events so it kept going to five of his sons, and now his son-in-law Caiaphas. And he used his immense wealth to ensure his dynasty, his wealth that was gained, and now watch this, his wealth that was gained through what was called the bazaars of Annas. You know what they were? Do you remember that Jesus cleaned out, cleared out the temple twice? What did he clear them out? What did he clear out? They were the money changers and the animal stalls. You see, if you wanted to sacrifice a lamb, you could either bring your own lamb or you could buy one from these animal stalls in the court of Gentiles. If you brought your own lamb, it was almost virtually assured that the corrupted priest would say, nope, there's a defect. You cannot sacrifice that one. You've got to buy one from the bazaar. And they were incredibly overpriced. There was so much money that Annas was getting through these stalls and the money-changing tables. It's why he was so furious at Jesus, who disrupted that twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once in the final week of his life. And Peter and John, along with the healed beggar, look at verse 14, they are brought, did you know the healed beggar was there? He's before this, the, the Sanhedrin with them. They're brought before these 71 men and they are interrogated. Now, don't miss what Luke tells us next. Remember my point, point number two. Put, pin your confidence to the promise. Here's the greatest encouragement I can give you for facing persecution, which if you are going to live for Jesus, you will surely face. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now, I'm going to drill into this just a little bit. You've got to get this. If you miss this, you're wildly going to go astray from the book of Acts. You're just not going to get it. And it's going to have grave consequences in the power of your own walk. That phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit 15 times in Acts, always, listen, always is connected to your witness, to your testimony. It's the power to tell people of Jesus. So many people in our modern church, they connect filled with the Spirit to speaking in tongues or healing the sick or having a really deep, powerful worship. The truth is, being filled with the Holy Spirit is always, in the book of Acts, connected to witnessing of Jesus. And was this not the promise that Jesus gave them just weeks before? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Pin your hope and your confidence to the promise. But how do you be filled with the Spirit? Obviously, it's only for a Christian who has been baptized in the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit. 
But being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing experience according to Ephesians 5.18. It's ongoing, and it does so. You are filled with the Spirit as you walk in loving obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word. If you are out of step with His Word, you will not be filled with the Spirit. If you are living in disobedience... You will not be filled with the Spirit. If you are lackadaisical and you are apathetic in your spiritual walk, you will not be filled with the Spirit. You must be in loving obedience to Jesus and His Word. And you can expect like a balloon, which looks full when you blow it up, but can take even more air and expand even greater. That's what it's like living the Christian life in loving obedience to Jesus and his word, and the Spirit of God fills you even more, and you're able to do even greater witnessing with more confidence, with more clarity, with more effectiveness. This is the result of being filled with the Spirit of God. You see, we pin our hope to the promise of Jesus that the filling of the Spirit will empower us to witness of Jesus even in the most hostile and dangerous situations. Now, remember, we're answering the question, how can we be effective witnesses even in the face of persecution? Point number three. Point your audience to one plan. And now we come to the point where the heat of persecution always turns up fast. The Sanhedrin asked them, Sanhedrin asked them, by what power or by what name? That means authority. Can I take a quick time out? I think I explained it a couple weeks ago. When we say in Jesus' name, amen, what you're really saying is in the power and authority of Jesus, so be it. That's how we close our prayers, most of us. So in the name of means in the power and authority. So they're asking, by what power or what authority did you do this, verse 7? Now, can't you picture like I can, Peter and John, just absolutely getting a smile going, I'm glad you asked, I've been wanting to tell you. I mean, can't you feel the anticipation? I mean, listen, here's what's happening. The Sanhedrin doesn't realize it, but God is opening a door for the gospel. Paul's later going to teach us in Colossians 4, at the same time, pray also for us, for what? That God God may open uh, to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So God's opening up a door, the Sanhedrin doesn't know this, but he's orchestrating all these events so that there's an opportunity for the mystery of Christ to be given. Now, friends, Christian brothers and sisters, listen, can you really tell me that you can sense when God is opening those doors in your life? I can sense those almost always. You should be able to sense those. If you're walking throughout the day, keep keeping constantly in prayer, eyes open, mind alert, always looking to preach, always looking to witness, always looking to share the good news of Jesus, you're going to see open doors more and more in your life. And then you've got the opportunity to take them. And you will not need to try to force one open. 
God will do that work, getting somebody ready for the gospel. And even if they do not respond favorably, it was still a divine appointment for you. Verse 10, Peter said, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the, by the name, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man, remember verse 14, the guy's right next to him, the lame beggar, by him, this man is standing before you, well, healed, saved. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And friends, I'm going to tell you, that last statement right there, that will get you persecuted more than anything else. Nothing angers this world system more than the exclusive claims of the gospel that there is one way to be saved and that through the person of Jesus. Now here's what alarms and terrifies me. There are people in our church who aren't sure if that is true. There are a lot of young people in our church that if they are pressed, do you agree with the exclusive claims of the gospel? And they're thoughtful. At minimum, they're going to say, I don't really know if I believe that. Years ago, a man whom we had considered to be an elder of our church sat in my office and told me that with all of his travels around the world, observing different religions and different worshipers, he no longer believed that Christianity was the only correct religion. I'm going to tell you what he was expressing. He's expressing what's called pluralism or religious relativity. And what that view says is it doesn't matter what path you start on, they're all going to get to the same place. It doesn't matter if you go into that path with a Baha'i religion or if you're a Muslim and you embrace Islam or Confucianism or Christianity. It does not matter because they're all going to get to the same place. Listen, friends, I'm going to tell you that is the prevailing teaching in America. And it started Genesis chapter 3 came straight from the devil. Yet Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and, and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the exclusive claim of the gospel. So Christian, listen, have no fear do not compromise the gospel. Proclaim it with courage and confidence. But you will be persecuted. How do you maintain an effective witness in the face of persecution? Point number four, my final one. Proclaim your, your testimony with God's permission. Proclaim your testimony with God's permission. You see, the Jewish rulers 
in Acts 4 could not refute the miracle of this healed man. He's standing right there. He's over 40. This was not just a passing paralysis. He'd had it since birth. So they resorted to what the world always does, power and intimidation. This is always the world's technique of persecution. Even if your friends abandon you because you will not do what they want you to do, because you hold to the teachings of Jesus Christ and his word, that is power, that is intimidation that they're going to do with you. They sent the apostles out, verse 15, and conferred with one another. They finally agreed, verse 17, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, the power and the authority of Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Now, point number four, if you remember, is proclaim your testimony with God's permission. Watch and listen to Peter and John. Whether it is right, they respond to these 71 wealthy, powerful men. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of, we have, of what we have seen and heard. Friends, it is always right in the sight of God to speak of what you have seen and heard. You have permission. So let that good news be too good to keep to yourself. Here is one thing you will never ever be able to do in heaven. Here's one thing you're never going to be able to do in heaven. Are you ready? You will never, ever witness of Jesus to an unbeliever in heaven. Never. So go, be filled, leave this church and witness of Jesus Christ. And listen, when you witness of Jesus Christ and somewhere down the line they put their faith in Jesus, you know what the Bible says? It says that you are laying up your friends for eternity. You are making friends for eternity. Have you ever read that phrase in the scriptures? Those friends for eternity are the ones that somehow, someplace, at some point, you witness to them, you influence them, and they either at that moment or later came to put their faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to be the ones, when you die here and you wake there, if they're, a, they're ahead of you, they're going to be on the side of the streets of gold clapping for you, welcoming you into your eternal treasure. Because they are there because you shared Christ with them. That's your friends forever. Do you not understand the joy of what that will be? A million years into eternity, they will sit down. I want to tell you again, thank you so much for sharing Christ with me. Because I wouldn't be here if you didn't. How many people are you not sharing Jesus with? And how many am I not sharing Jesus with? We leave here, we are filled with the Spirit, we are empowered as witnesses of Christ. 
and we tell people about Jesus. And if you desire to live a godly life and you witness of Jesus Christ, friends, I'm going to tell you, you will be persecuted. So what do you do? Number one, you prepare your mind for persecution. Number two, you pin your confidence to the promise of the Holy Spirit to fill you and empower you to witness. You point your audience to one plan. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone by which you can be saved. And number four, you proclaim your testimony. You have God's permission, and with that permission, you have his power. Amen? Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Father, for the book of Acts. It is so encouraging. And Lord, it's encouraging to me, and it's motivating to me to want to live as a witness of Jesus Christ to get outside the walls of the church more and to be able to look for opportunities to tell people who are unbelievers there is hope, there is salvation, but it is found only in one person. His name is Jesus, who died on that cross in my place for my sins to make me right with his Father to make me clean so that I could live forever in his presence. Father, I pray that we would leave here tonight, God, and be determined. We will not be silent any longer. We will not be afraid. We will make friends for eternity. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.